Hear God's word from Psalm 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning Yahweh, the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made Yahweh the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, I'm sorry, let me reread that. Because you have made Yahweh, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Because he has his heart set on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now with Psalm 91 open before us. We have just read your word, so we have just heard you speak. We pray, Father, that you would hide these words in our heart, that we would not sin against you. Incline our heart to your testimonies and not to material gain, not to physical health alone, not to the latest news, but incline us to your word. Incline our hearts to your word. Open our eyes, Lord, to see wonderful things here in your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Give us a focus on you, a united singular heart. Guard us from a divided heart and distracted attention. Guard us from the evil one who would seek to distract us and pluck out the word from our ears and our hearts in this time and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love in Christ that we would rejoice and be glad in you today in this season of social distancing with the COVID-19 virus and all the days of our lives. Guide us and bless us, we pray. We need your help now. I need your help. And we need your help now. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. The COVID-19 infection continues to spread across Los Angeles and around the world. As of yesterday at noon, there were 53 confirmed cases here in Los Angeles with one death. Five here in Long Beach, not too far from where we are at here in Bellflower in Southeast LA County. Now as Christians, we want to be safe. We want to draw near to God and we want to still love our neighbors well with the spread of this virus. But the question is, how can we, I mean, how can we find security in God and not be dominated by fear or panic ourselves? How can we find peace with God that allows us to love our neighbors well and engage our neighbors well and uh, potentially take risks in loving our neighbors well for the sake of spreading the gospel? How do we get that courage in the midst of fear and panic on the one hand 
And if you read Heber's prayer of confession, on the, in the midst of indifference on the other hand, how do we get this love of God in us that we might love others well and not be dominated by indifference or by fear in the midst of this um, global crisis, this global pandemic? The problem is that the COVID-19 threat is real and the call for social distancing seems reasonable, at least reasonable enough to the three pastor, pastors of this church that we were uh, willing to lead the church to cancel a physical gathering this Sunday. Now, we need to ask ourselves a question. Maybe, maybe you ask this, I ask this. What if I get the COVID-19 infection or one of my loved one gets it? What if one of the church members gets it? What if I spread it? What if I get it and I don't know I have it and it's dormant with me and I spread it and someone else um, gets it because of me? What if I die or what if one of my loved ones dies? That's a very real concern right now in this time. Now, there are other dangers that cause fear besides the COVID-19 virus if you're not particularly scared of that in this day. This psalm speaks to our fears and not just the COVID-19 fear, whether it's other health issues we have, whether our fear is a broken relationship or losing relationships, family relationships. It could be financial hardship with the stock market plummeting, um, our retirement seeming to dissipate in seconds perhaps, um, whether it's our job, the uncertainty of work with breaks and things like that. Um, there's all kinds of fears that can happen in our lives because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and, and besides the COVID-19 pandemic and its effects. The good news from Psalm 91 is this. We don't have to be dominated by fear as if God, is, as if God has lost control or as, or as if God is indifferent to our difficulties and as if he doesn't care. The psalmist writes this psalm to help us. So look at Psalm 91. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 and read along with me as I go through this. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. That's a statement that the psalmist is making. So you live under, those who live under God's protection, they dwell in God's shade, His shadow. And then here's his testimony. I will say concerning Yahweh, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then he goes on to talk about how God protects you, how God protects his covenant people. But notice here, he's speaking from his own experience. God is, in verse 2, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So this psalmist has tasted God's goodness and security. He knows that God is good to him. And now he wants to declare who God is for God's covenant people so that they might experience that same security, that same fearlessness, that same goodness that he himself has experienced. He has seen God as a fortress who has protected him from enemy invaders. He has seen God as, his name is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has been faithful to keep his covenant to bless his people. He is, uh, he is God. He is his personal God, my God. So he knows God personally and he trusts in God. And so this psalmist is writing to us because he has felt the security in troubled times and he wants us readers, he wants the old covenant readers in his original audience and us new covenant readers to understand and receive this grace and this blessing from this passage. So um, he's not sharing a theoretical idea. He's not speaking theoretically, but he's speaking the truth that he has experienced personally and intimately. And there's just a lesson here for us in terms of application. As Christian brothers and sisters, as we seek to encourage others, and when I say encourage, I mean give courage to others, as we seek to do that, we do that from a position of experience. 
We are needy sinners. God has poured out his grace on us. And as God pours out his grace on us, we now have that goodness and grace to be able to speak to others and say, hey, I'm weak just like you. I'm a sinner just like you. I'm broken just like you. But God has been my refuge and strength. And he is your refuge and strength too if you are in God's covenant love through Christ Jesus. So that's a message for us. Experience God's love that we might encourage others with God's love as well. So here's the main goal. The main goal of Psalm 91, I think, is this. Taste the goodness of dwelling in the shade of the Almighty. I'll say that again. Taste the goodness of dwelling in the shade of the Almighty. I'm getting this from verse 1. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High and dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. He dwells in the shade of the Almighty. The sun might be beating down, so what do you do? You go for shade. And guess who this psalmist's shade is? His shade is the Almighty God. His shade is God himself. And he says that all of those who live under the protection of the Most High, they dwell in the shade of the Almighty. And so the, again, the main goal, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes or just type them there in the comment section, the main goal is this, taste the goodness of dwelling in the shade, the protective shade of the Almighty. What a wonderful grace if we can taste and experience this goodness. All right, so to experience this goodness and to taste this goodness, I wanna point out three things to you, okay? So three ways you experience God's goodness. Three ways you taste this and could taste it. Number one, you experience protection from God. That's verses three through eight. You experience protection from God. We'll spend a lot of time there. Secondly, you experience intimacy with God. That's verses 9 through 14. We'll spend um, some considerable time there. And then we'll spend a short time on the last part, verses 14 through 16. You experience communion with God. Okay? So you experience protection from God or by God. You experience um, intimacy with God. And then you experience communion with God. Let's look at those one at a time. First, in verses 3 through 8, you experience protection from God. Okay, so um, look at verse three. It says, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. So there's two things you experience in protection. You experience protection from danger and then protection from fear. But first here, protection from danger. Look at verse three and four. He rescues you from the bird trap. So there's a fowler. The ESV says he, he protects you from the fowler. Um, the the the, the man who tries to trap birds, he has to set traps that the birds can't see. So there are deceptive traps that are lying around that we can't see. And God is the one who protects you from those traps. And then it says in verse 3, from the destructive plague. From the destructive plague. We're here in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And here God says, that, or the, the psalmist testifies that God will rescue you from the destructive plague. Not only that, look at verse four. He will cover you. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. Now this is a psalm, this is poetry. Obviously God does not have feathers. This is uh, speaking anthropomorphically or maybe, I don't know, animalpomorphically. I just made up a word. But here it's the image of God as a bird or as someone who's protecting his young birds under his wing. Jesus says the same thing in, in Luke when he's looking over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish I could take you under my wing, but you would not repent. 
Here, God is someone who protects. He covers you with his wing. He covers you with his feathers. And that shields you from danger. Instead of you getting hurt, God covers you with his wing. And he takes the pain. He takes the attack himself uh, as, you, as you are under his protective shield. And notice here, his protective shield is his faithfulness. God is faithful. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the name Yahweh means. It's his personal name. That he is faithful to his promise, his covenant promises. And here, his faithfulness to himself, to his glory, to his salvation, to his covenant, that is our shield from destructive plagues, and that is our shield from traps that we can't see ourselves. So there, you see that we experience God's protection from danger, uh, but also here, we experience God's protection from fear. We experience God's protection from fear. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, you will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. So you're not scared of terror at night. Scary at night, if you remember as a little kid, you might be scared of the dark at night because things happen at night that you can't see. But here, because God is your protection, his faithfulness is your shield, you will not fear terror at night. And then during the daytime... You won't fear uh, the arrow that flies by day because the wars are fought during the daytime. So uh, whether by night or by day, you're not scared. The plague that stalks in darkness, so the disease that's going around in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Whether the COVID-19 spreads in the evening, and in dark, or in the morning, whether you're aware of it or unaware of it, you're in a large crowd where you know there's risk, or you're just ordering a coffee at a Starbucks and the person happens to pass you something, whether they have it on them unaware and it's, it's, it's unknown. Either way, whether it's a, a situation where you're more aware or less aware, the point here is that this psalmist says that the person who trusts in God, the person under God's protection, does not fear. He does not fear in night or in day. Whether it's known or unknown, whether the threat is known or unknown, he does not fear. He will not fear. Look at verse 7. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. So people are dying all around you. People are falling beside you. And yet, whether it's a thousand or ten thousand, which is the largest number in Hebrew, I think, that they could say, the pestilence will not reach you. Wow, what a promise. You won't be reached with pestilence even though it's reaching everyone else. You are, in a sense, unreachable. Thousands dying around you, 10,000, millions dying around you, and yet the plague won't reach you. That's what it says here. The pestilence will not reach you. What does that mean? How, how is it that, that um, this is unreachable? Are we? Is this true? Look at verse 7 again. The pestilence will not reach you. Is this true for Christians, those in covenant relationship with God? Is it true that the pestilence, and now today, 2019, March 15th, 2019, the COVID-19 virus, is it true that it will not reach Christians today? Or is this verse untrue? I mean, other believers got sick. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 got sick almost to the point of death. James and Stephen were not rescued from harm. James was beheaded in Acts 11 or 12. And Stephen was martyred in Acts 7. 
Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He had some distress. He had some attack from Satan, a messenger from Satan to torment him. He prayed three times that God would remove it, and God did not remove it. It seems like it reached him. Christians have had, and Christians do have, the COVID-19 virus and, and um, infection. And, and some of them have died from it. And, and more will die from it. Just like non-Christians. So it's not just non-Christians who are suffering from this. It's Christians as well. So is this verse true? That it will not reach them? I mean, during the plagues in Egypt, when the plagues reached out and um, when God was um, redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt, the plagues did not reach Israel. But here, and here it sounds similar, and yet we have Christians who are dying. In what sense won't the pestilence reach God's man or God's woman? In what sense, look at verse 7 again, in what sense will the pestilence not reach the person who lives under the protection of the Most High? My answer is that um, pestilence won't reach those who live under the Most High in an ultimate sense. But in a penultimate sense, it might reach them. So um, Christians die from things like this. Christians suffer harm, and yet they don't suffer ultimate death, and they don't suffer ultimate harm. I think this is referring to uh, primarily judgment from God. And I get this from verse 8. Look at verse 8. This is why I think it's ultimate and not just um, penultimate. Verse 8 says, You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. So you're not going to get the pestilence reaching you. You'll only see the, the pestilence with your eyes and you're going to witness the what of the wicked? Look at verse 8. What's going to happen to the wicked? The punishment of the wicked. So here I think God is talking about divine judgment that is falling on the wicked that will not fall on those who live under the protection of the Most High. And listen to Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 to 61. It says this, If you are not careful to obey all the words of this law, that's the law covenant, the Israelic covenant given through Moses, the old Israelic covenant, if, you don't, if you're not careful to obey all the words of this law which are written in this scroll by fearing this glorious and awe-inspiring name, Yahweh, your God, he will bring wondrous plagues on you and your descendants, severe and lasting plagues and terrible and chronic sicknesses. He will afflict you again with all the diseases of Egypt which you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also afflict you with every sickness and plague not recorded in the book of this law until you are destroyed. This is the covenant curses. If you don't keep the law covenant, you're not part of the covenant people of God, God will destroy you with plagues, with sickness, with, among other things, with enemy armies, if you read on in Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says later on in verse 13 of Psalm 91 that you're going to trample on the lion and the cobra, the serpent. But here... Not only is sickness a sign of God's judgment, but so are wild animals. Listen to Ezekiel 14, 21. For this is what Yahweh God says. How much worse it will be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem. Sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague. Dangerous animals and plague. In order to wipe out both man and animal from it. So plague and sicknesses is part of God's judgment. He's talking about the, the judgment of God for sin, for breaking the covenant, for being out of the covenant, and wild animals. 
Now, it says here in Psalm 91 verse 8 that we won't face this divine judgment. We won't face the wild animals or the sickness in a judgmental way where we are condemned before God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15, there will be a great white throne judgment. And those whose names are not written in the, in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And we will be there at the judgment because we will be judged too as Christians, but we will see them go into their judgment as we are about to enter into the new earth to come. So I think the point here in verse seven about us, the pestilence not reaching us, it's the ultimate judgment of God. The ultimate pestilence, the ultimate death, the ultimate sickness, the ultimate harm, not penultimate harm. And that's why it says in Romans 8, 35, uh, and then 37 through 39, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we might face death and sword and peril and angels or rulers or things present or things to come or persecution or famine or sickness. But it will not ultimately separate us from the love of God. It will not ultimately end up with us being conquered and being judged by God in our sins. But we are more than conquerors. We cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We will not be reached by this judgment. And that's the promise. And if you are free from the condemnation of God, then you are now free to be fearless in the face of any lesser pains and troubles. Let me give you a, a short biblical theology of plague. I was talking to Pastor Alex Hong from Christian, from, um, Christian Fellowship Bible Church in West Covina. We prayed for their church this morning. Um, I was talking to him this week about COVID-19. And so we talked about a biblical theology of plague. So I just want to sketch this out for you. Now, God is sovereign over all things. God controls all things. God controls all viruses, all bacteria, everything that floats in the air, every bacteria that's still here on this surface, every virus that's still here on these surfaces. God is in control of absolutely everything, every hand motion, every particle that you breathe in and breathe out. God controls all of it. God is in control of sickness. He's in control of death. But God promises in the midst of all of this control to still love and bless his people. So where do plagues come from and where does sickness come from? Well, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat the banana on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't know if it was a banana, but he ate the fruit, right? He ate the fruit and then death entered the world. And notice when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the creation began to rebel against Adam and Eve. The ground would not yield as easily to Adam and Eve. Wild animals now would become a threat. Nature, which is supposed to serve us as kings and queens of the universe, are now rebelling against us. And so bacteria and viruses rebel against those who are made in God's image. We're supposed to rule over these things, and yet they can kill us. They become threats to us. And that happened, that began in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. So, so now that plague and pestilence is now possible and enters into the world via Genesis 3. You see plagues uh, opposing and judging those who take Abraham's wife, Sarah, in the book of Genesis. Um, 
And then in, in the book of Exodus, you see plagues sweep across the Egyptians who are holding God's covenant people in slavery. And then you see plague and pestilence sweep across Israel at different points in their judgment. When David took a census, there was a pestilence that swept across the land. When Phinehas, um, when there was sexual immorality uh, because of Balaam's deception in Numbers, in the end of the book of Numbers, there was a pestilence that swept across the Israelites. Um, so you got plagues throughout the Old Testament. You got the threat of plague if you break the law covenant with Moses, the Israelite covenant. There's threat of plague there. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and he's healing many diseases. Jesus is healing sicknesses. And so do the apostles. The apostles, Paul, Peter, the apostles are healing sicknesses. But they also let many people die. Jesus doesn't heal everybody. The apostles don't heal everybody. Paul doesn't even heal Epaphroditus who's almost dead from sickness in Philippians 2. Paul gets sick. So, so, so sicknesses are being healed to, to give a sign for the final healing but not the final healing now or during Jesus' time. And so they healed some plagues, but not all plagues, not all sicknesses. And even now in James chapter five, God calls for churches to pray. He calls you to call on the pastors of a church to pray for you as you confess your sins that you might be healed. That's in James chapter five. In Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, you have this threat of plagues over and over that plagues would sweep across the earth. And when you have these plagues, that are given in God's judgment, those who are not in Christ, those who do not have the seal of the lamb but the mark of the beast instead, there's only two groups, they would suffer these different kinds of plagues and they would not repent. So they would face ultimate judgment, not only by having a temporal judgment of plague now, but in their hardness of heart, hardening their heart against God or refusing to come to Christ in repentance, they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire at the end because of their impenitence and unrepentance. And so you have plagues there. Whereas for us, in the new earth, after the final judgment, when, when the new creation is made and renewed, and we're living on the new earth, there will be no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. It says that the leaves of the tree of life in Revelation 22 are for the healing of the nations. So the lake of fire will perfectly exercise God's wrath fittingly for all eternity on those who are under the punishment, the punishment of the wicked, and we will only see it with our eyes. We will not experience it, it will not reach you. These plagues, these ultimate plagues, and ultimate death, and ultimate judgment, this punishment is not for those who dwell under the shadow, under the shade of the Almighty. Praise God for that. Now if you're, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you know what PJ, this, um, this is why I would never become a Christian. If you say God is all powerful and all good and all loving, then why is there evil in the world? How can, how can you reconcile the horrors of this world that are occurring daily, especially with this COVID-19 virus? How can, how can you believe in God if God allows that? I mean, even you even said to Christians, if God allows that for Christians, how can you believe in that kind of God? If there is a God, he's either not powerful because he can't stop it, or he's not good because he won't stop it. But he can't be all-powerful and all-good because of all of the evil and suffering in the world, even in this day. Either way, the God of the Bible can't exist. Now, for many people, this is not only an intellectual objection. This is actually a personal and intensely painful problem. They have suffered a tragedy, abuse, and injustice. And those things are real and horrific and evil. And they happen. 
And we are saying as Christians that God is good and that he is powerful, all-powerful and in perfect control. So let me give you a brief response. And this comes from our brother Tim Keller, who was formerly a pastor in Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. If God himself has suffered, then our suffering is not senseless for two reasons, two things to consider. First, if you have a God that's big enough and powerful enough to be angry at for not healing or for not acting in his goodness, if that God is that big that you can actually be angry at him, if he's that big, then he needs to be big enough and transcendent enough for him to have reasons for why he does things that you can't understand. Does that make sense? So if you're not Christian, let me, let me run that by one more time. If God is big enough for you to be angry at for not stopping this pandemic or the evil and suffering in this world, and it is painful, if God is big enough for you to be angry at for not doing that, then God is also equally big enough to have reasons for these happening in this world and in your life that we can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Either God is big enough for these things and he can have reasons that we can't understand or... Um, or um, or you can't really be mad at him for not, for not doing things our way. That's first. Second response is we don't know all the reasons why God allows things. We don't know the specific reasons why God allows suffering to continue. But we know this. God cannot be indifferent and he is not uncaring. God does care. And we know that God cares because unlike the gods of all other religions, God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to get involved himself. God comes down and becomes a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he suffers and dies injustice, death, suffering, persecution, isolation, shame. He suffers that for his people and for you to hear the gospel today. So whatever you're going through in suffering, I know we don't have all the answers to why God allows the specific things that you're going through. And yet we know that God does care because God himself got involved. So if you're not a Christian, let me just briefly tell you what the good news is. Here's the good news for you. You can have hope. You can have security. You can have ultimate healing. You can have forgiveness. You can have God. Here's the gospel, the main message of Christianity. God created you and he created me. He created us in his image. God is the creator. He loves us and he made us to have a relationship with him. But God is also the judge. And we have rebelled against God as creator. And we have sh shaken our fist at him and rebelled against him. We've rejected him. And because we have rejected God in our sin and selfishness and evil, God is judge. And he will judge us for our sins in hell, in the lake of fire forever. The penalty for sin is death, it says in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And so therefore, we are damned and condemned for our sins. But here's the good news. God is not only creator and judge. God is Jesus, the Messiah. God came down, like I said, he became a man. He lived the life we should have lived without sin in perfect communion with God. Yet he died on the cross for our sins, not for his own. He died at the hands of the Romans and Jews. He also died by God's decree and with God's judgment on him. He paid the penalty for our sins, suffered the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, and that was on a Friday, and on the third day, he rose from the dead so that God is not only Christ, God is king. So that Christ, as the declared king, would take everyone and receive everyone to him who would repent from their sins, lay down their rebellion and weapons of war, and trust in Jesus as Messiah, King, and Lord. 
So if you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior, as the King, the one who came to save us and the one who came to rule over us in love and grace, then you too can have eternal life. You can have God himself if you would just come to him. So if you're not a Christian, please, please, please repent from your sins and trust in Jesus and have God as your king and treasure. What is our only hope in life and death? The catechism question asks that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus the Messiah. So you experience the protection of God if you're under God's care. So taste the goodness of dwelling in the shade of the Almighty. Because I want you to um, realize you experience God's protection. Secondly, you experience intimacy with God, okay? You experience intimacy with God. Verses 9 through 14. Look at verse 9 with me back here. Because you have made... Oh, actually, let's go to verse 10. I want, I want you to see the, the promises, these blessings repeated and extended. Verse 10 says... No harm will come to you. I just talked about what that meant. No ultimate harm will, will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. No judgment of God. In the Old Covenant, that was temporary plagues as well. In the New Covenant, we know of the ultimate sense of these things. But no harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. That's the, the promise extended. But look at verse 12. Here's another part of the promise. They, as speaking of angels, will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So God promises to protect you from harm, from plague, and he even promises that he will send angels to protect you or to protect his people so that their feet are not even dashed against the rocks. Now, why would God promise these things to his people? Why does God promise this to anyone? That he'll protect them from all harm, protect them from all plague, and, and, and even protect them from their foot being dashed against the rock. Why would God do this? There are three reasons given in verses 9 and 14, okay? Three reasons given. Verse 9, here's the first reason why God would do this to some people, why he would protect them in this way. So this is the intimacy with God. This shows intimacy with God, these three reasons. The first reason is in verse 9. Because you have made Yahweh, the psalmist's refuge and the Most High, you have made Yahweh your dwelling place. So the first reason why God would bless people like us and protect us and send angels to guard us is because we have made our dwelling place, our home has become Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And because Christ has become our home, to give a new covenant sense to it, because God has become our home, because we have made him our dwelling place, we are protected from harm, from this ultimate harm, from plague, from judgment. And we have angels guarding us. So that's the first thing. We have made God our dwelling place. Psalm 84, 11 says, how lovely is your dwelling place. Better a thousand days in your court, um, better a thousand days, or better one day in your court, I'm sorry, than a thousand elsewhere. And I feel that right now because the church gathered is the course of the living God. We are the new covenant temple. And here I am preaching to a phone on a stand with no church family here. But it is sweet when we gather, isn't it? It is sweet when we gather. And that is the dwelling place of God. And we have made God our dwelling place. Because the Spirit dwells in us when we gather, and we will be in the new earth to come, and God Himself is our dwelling place. So we have experienced intimacy with God as our, as our home, and that's the first reason why we have this blessed protection. The second reason why we have this blessed protection is in verse 14. So look at verse 14 of Psalm 91. Verse 14 says, Because God, because He has set His heart on me, 
This is God speaking now, talking about the one he's protecting. Because this one I'm protecting has set his heart on me. So we see here in verse 14, a second reason why God gives us blessed protection is because we have set our hearts on God. This is the same thing as when you set your heart to marry someone in the Bible. When they set Jacob setting his heart on Rachel, for example. He's, he's resolved, he's sold, he's committed, he's done, he's, he's committed, he's all in. So when you have, uh, when, 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 this is what Christians have, we have set our heart on God. We have made our decision, it's final, we are not turning back, that is what we do. We have set our hearts on God. And in a similar way, God knows that those who are his people have set their hearts on him, they have focused on him, and so because of that, God has given them blessed protection. Now we set our hearts on God in love. Let's not get this twisted. God is protecting us because we love him, but we love, 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. So we love God, and we're in that covenant because God first loved us. He opened our eyes to the gospel. He gave us faith. He gave us the good news. And so for that, we have set our hearts on him, and we are enjoying his blessed protection. So there's that second piece of intimacy that we've set our hearts on God. We've made him as our dwelling place. We've set our hearts on God. And thirdly, verse 14, I'll protect him. Why? Look at verse 14. Because he what? Look at it. I know I'm on a screen, but look at it. Verse 14. Why will he protect his people, his person? Because he knows my name. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. They personally, this person personally knows God as Yahweh. As Father, And because we personally know God, God gives us his blessed protection. So because God, we made God our dwelling place, because we set our heart on God, because we know God's name, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has given us his blessed protection. Now I want to confess a sin here and a temptation, a weakness in my life. As I was reflecting on the psalm, here's my problem with this psalm. I want to find my dwelling place my safety, my security, not only in God, but in God's ways, plus safety from the COVID-19 virus. I have a, a, an invested interest in, in trying my best to not spread the virus to other people because I love them, but specifically because one of my family members is high risk in my home. One of my family members is high risk in my home, and so if the COVID-19 virus comes, there's fear in me as as a husband and father, that we might endanger one of the lives of those in our household. And that freaks me out, that scares me. It scares me so much that when I look at this, I'm like, Lord, I know you're my dwelling place. I know you're my safety. But can you also keep me and my family safe from this infection and from death? And I feel this uneasiness, I feel this fear, and I don't hear from God in response, okay, I'll keep you from this. I don't hear that from Psalm 91, I don't hear that from the rest of the Bible, that God is promising me that he'll, he'll keep me or my family from the COVID-19 infection. What I hear from God is Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To, to, to be apart from God is far better than, or to be apart from, from people here on earth, to be with God is far better than to be here on earth. That's what I hear. And so God's saying to me, PJ, your hope is in me, in life and in death. I hear God saying through um, to my family members, PJ, the hope for your family is in me, in life and in death. And because of those things, because of those things, God has to be my dwelling. And I confess 
that God, that I've had a, an earthly-minded, short-sighted heart that doesn't make the Lord my dwelling place. We need to make God our dwelling place. That's our privilege. That's our joy. That's our obligation, our blessed obligation. And so we see this promise given, uh, this protection because of our intimacy with God. But let's look at this promise of protection again developed in verses 11 through 13. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. So there's a promise. They will support you with their hands so that your foot will not strike, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Here the promise is that God will protect you in general, but then he'll also give you his angels. So his angels will protect you in general, all your ways, verse 11. They'll protect your foot from striking the stone, verse 12. And you will not be threatened by wild animals, the lion or the serpent, but you will step on them. You will crush them. Now, if, you, if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, verse, verse um, 11 and 12 is quoted by Satan when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So if you go to Matthew chapter 4, you find this quoted there as the second temptation, I believe, um, between Jesus and Satan, where Satan is tempting Jesus and saying, jump off, the, jump off the temple, jump off the temple. You're not going to hit your feet on the ground. It says right here, you believe the Bible, right? You believe the specific words of, of the Bible, right? You believe in inerrancy? I do. Uh, Jesus does. So, so just jump if you believe it. You live by faith, not by sight, right? It says it right here. Faith comes by hearing. Do you hear, do you hear Psalm 91 verse 12? Do you believe it? If you do, then jump. That's how Satan used it. Satan twisted. Um, now, that's a true text, and it's truly applying to Jesus of all people. And yet, um, Satan was using this in a twisted, sinful way. He wanted Jesus to test God unnecessarily, as if God was leading him to jump just to show off. Now, instead of, Satan wanted to use this passage for Jesus to experience this passage in a sinful way. Instead, Jesus obeys God and experiences Psalm 91 verses 11, 12, in God's way, because after Jesus goes through the 40 days without giving in to sin, the angels come and minister to him. And because of that, Jesus experiences Psalm 91, 11 and 12, not through giving in to temptation and sin, but by denying temptation and sin. He experiences God, the God of Psalm 91, 11 and 12. And even more than 11 and 12, verse 13. Look at 13 again, because Jesus did experience verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Jesus would trample the serpent. He would step on the serpent. Does that sound like anything in the Bible to you? I wish you guys were here right now, just so I could see your eyes and see the wheels turning. What does it sound like? That Jesus would trample the serpent and the lion. By not giving into temptation, Jesus experiences the angel's ministry, but he also experiences the crushing, the trampling of the serpent, Satan. The one who goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Jesus tramples him by his obedience to God, not only in the temptation in the wilderness, but ultimately by his death on the cross for sinners. So um, here angels are sent to um, protect and serve Jesus, but they're also sent to serve and protect you as a Christian. And verse 13 is not just for Jesus, it's for you. You, Christian, you covenant people, you will tread on the serpent. You will step on the lion, the young lion. Now, how, how, do, how do we step on the lion? Well, remember, wild animals is a cause for judgment. So before you think about Satan, wild animals is a, is a sign of God's judgment for sin 
on people in the old covenant. So in that way, God will deliver you from judgment for breaking the covenant. That's the first way you'll tread on the wild animals. But the second way, and, and this is book four of the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. In book four, the main thrust of book four is that you would hope in Yahweh as your king and look to the Davidic king for restoration from exile. So that had to be tied to David, who would the Davidic king who would rescue us from exile. But the Davidic king is from the tribe of Judah. That's a promise in Genesis 49 that the scepter would be from Judah. And that, that seed from David and Judah was uh, Judah is a descendant of, of Israel and of Abraham. So there's that covenant blessing promised to Abraham's seed. So this Davidic king who's a descendant of David, descendant of Judah, descendant of Abraham is also the descendant of the woman in Genesis 3. And there in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. And so here, Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent. But if Jesus crushes the serpent, now I said you crush the, the serpent and the lion too. Why? Because when Jesus crushes the serpent and conquers Satan, we conquer Satan in Christ. Through our living for Jesus, we too conquer and crush Satan. We tread on his head. That's in Romans 16, verse 20. That's in Revelation 2 and 3, as we are conquerors. In Revelation 12, verse 11, we conquer Satan as well. So we sing with the saints all around the world, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. Tis grace that will lead me home. So let's remind each other that we're known by God, that we have an intimate relationship with God, and that we will be victorious in Christ. So taste the goodness of Dwelling in the shade of the Almighty by number one, by uh, experiencing God's protection. Number two, experiencing God's intimacy. And number three, and very shortly, by experiencing communion with God. Verses 14 to 16, experiencing communion with God. Now look at verses 14 to 16 with me. Look at it. There are eight covenant blessings here that are promised. I'll read the passage and then I'll name the blessings. Because he has set his heart on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with long life and show him my salvation. Why did I only count seven? Let's name the eight. Okay, here they are. Deliverance. I will deliver him. God will deliver his people. Again, stated earlier against the enemies, against the arrow. God will deliver you from trouble, from people who attack. Um, it says later, I will protect him because he knows my name. So God will protect us, again, from enemies and from plague. In verse 15, when he calls out to me, I will answer him. So God will, will respond to you. God answers prayers. That means we have an intimate relationship with God. When I pray, when you pray, God hears us. That's why Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock. And the door will be open to you. Because God responds to us. He answers us. So we don't act like... King Saul, who said, oh, well, God's going to do what he does, so there's no point. But we act more like King David, who when God promised judgment on David, David prayed like crazy. He didn't say, oh, well, God said it, so it must be good. No, he prayed. He knows God responds. God answers his people when they pray to him. So that's a, a third blessing, response. Fourth, God's presence. God's presence. He says, uh, I will be with him in trouble. So God promises his presence. The Lord is our shepherd. He guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. That's why we fear no evil. The song says, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did he leave us on our own. God is faithful. Not only does he promise that, he promises rescue in verse 15. In verse 16, he promises honor 
He says, or in verse 15 again, I will give him honor. God promises to honor us. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble in due time. It says in, in Philippians 2 that Christ humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. And in the same way, if you humble yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, God will too exalt you as you suffer under his name, trusting in Christ. Reading on in verse 16, God promises he will satisfy you with long life. This is God speaking now to you. I will satisfy him with long life. Now, in the Old Covenant, that was literally a long life. In the New Covenant, we know that life can get cut short, but there's the resurrected life to come. Jesus himself, the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm, as one living under God. If anyone deserved long life, it was Jesus, yet his life was cut very short, shorter than my life, my earthly life right now. But yet, this applies to him too. God will satisfy him with long life, including resurrection life. And then salvation in verse 16, I will show him my salvation. Again, in the old covenant, that's salvation from enemies, salvation from those temporal judgments. But we know under the new covenant and New Testament revelation that it's even ultimate and eternal salvation. Praise God that God promises that he will commune with us, that he'll interact with us. This is, and the reason I put communion with God here for verses 14 through 16 is because God is the one speaking. Verses 14 through 16 shifts from the psalmist talking about God to God saying, I will give you deliverance. I will give you protection. I will respond to you. I'll answer you. I'll be present with you. I will rescue you. I will give you honor. I will satisfy you with long life. I will show you my salvation. Brother, sister in Christ, God speaks to you. God addresses you. God communicates to you because he wants to commune with you. So hear from him directly and draw near to God personally. Yes, God loves BBC. He loves our church family. He loves the universal church, but he loves you individually. He loves you and he wants to commune with you. So church family, let's be like the psalmist and let's echo God and teach about God and quote God to one another that we might all personally commune with God, even as we do corporately. If you're not a Christian, God wants a relationship with you. If you will hear him, if you will hear his son, and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So I close with this. Here's the main goal. Taste the goodness of dwelling in the shade of the Almighty by experiencing God's protection, his intimacy, and communion with you. Now, if we're honest, we haven't, we haven't, um, we haven't set our hearts on God or made him our ultimate and only dwelling place. Right? I confessed that earlier. The psalmist here, um, those who are in God have made God his dwelling. But we haven't made God our dwelling perfectly. I want God's dwelling, I want God to be my dwelling plus some safety for my family. We haven't made God our ultimate and only hope. We haven't made God our ultimate and only refuge. I already confess that I haven't. So we don't, I don't deserve, we don't deserve this protection. We don't deserve this intimacy. We don't deserve this communion with God. We don't deserve these protections and blessings. But there's someone who does. There's someone who did all these things. He had his heart set on God. He loved God. He found his refuge in God all the time. He knew the name of God. He deserved the protection of God. He deserved the intimacy with God. He deserved the communion of the Almighty. He truly dwelt in the shadow and in the shade of the Almighty. And his name is Jesus. Yet, even though Jesus did these things, Jesus was given the plague of darkness. It says in the terror of night, the plague that stalks in darkness, Jesus was given the plague of darkness as he hung on the cross and darkness covered him. 
Jesus, it says here that the, the, the psalmist would avoid the arrows, that the arrows would not, um, that you wouldn't fear the arrows, and yet Jesus got a spear to his side. It says that we will be fearless, and yet Jesus was fearful, not sinfully, but he was fearful and trembling in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, pleading with God three times, God, please let this, let this cup be passed from me in fear and in trembling. He was not given the gift of fearlessness in that moment. And Jesus was punished. Here it says that we will witness the punishment of the wicked. Well, Jesus, people witnessed the punishment of Jesus as wicked, even though he wasn't wicked. He was sinless. Yet Jesus was punished with the punishment of the wicked. He was cursed by hanging on a tree. He was not delivered or protected. He was not covered by God, covered under his wings. He was exposed in nakedness and shame. He was not with a response. It says here, when, when they pray, it says here, um, when he calls out to me, I will answer him. Well, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was met with silence, not a response. God had abandoned him. And he was met with silence. He was dishonored. He was abandoned. And his life was cut short. His life was not extended. He was not saved on that cross. He was damned. He was cursed. Why? To save sinners like us so that we could have these covenant blessings, so that we could know God's name, so that we could focus and set our hearts on God, so that we could take refuge under his wings, so that we could experience God's protection and God's intimacy and God's communion. Christ died for us and rose for us. So brother, sister, those who are hearing right now, in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, receive God's love. Receive God's protection, his intimacy, his communion. Receive God's love. Receive it so much so that you are free from fear. So that you can, and you're free from indifference. By receiving God's love, you're free from these things so that you can now courageously love your neighbors. Maybe by social distancing, maybe by socially engaging somebody and meeting the needs of your neighbors with gospel love. So, so love your neighbors. Find out if they have needs. Love fellow church members. Call each other up. Email each other. Let's share where we need help. Anyone short on toilet paper? Does anyone need toilet paper? Maybe some of our members can provide it. Communicate with each other via email, via social media. Call each other. Look each other up in the directory and communicate with each other. If you have neighbors who need help, engage them, help them. If you need us to provide needs for your neighbors as you engage them, let us know that we might as a church family love our neighbors well. We have received so much of God's love and protection and security that we don't need to protect ourselves. We don't need to be careless, but we don't need to be so cautious that we disengage and isolate ourselves. Let us love carefully and cautiously and wisely for God's glory in these days. If you don't receive God's love and then love people wisely and courageously, you will be dominated by fear, you will act selfishly, and you will distance yourself from God, your only hope and refuge. But if you will receive God's love and then channel that love to those around you, you will be freed from fear, you will experience God's love and security, and you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll be able to love fellow members of Bethany Baptist Church as Christ has loved you. Because Christ tasted death for us, we can taste the goodness of God that frees us to live boldly under the shade of the Almighty. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for Psalm 91. We praise you that it's true. And we pray that you would humble us and draw us near to you under your wings, under your care, under your faithfulness, your protective shield. Guide us and guard us in these days. With the spread of the COVID-19 infection going around, we pray for strength for our people, that we might find hope not in medical doctors ultimately, not in good hygiene ultimately, not in social distancing ultimately, though we want to do those things well. May we find you as our dwelling. You are our only hope in life and in death. So we pray that you'd help us and draw near to us, together and scattered as a church family, that we might be so overwhelmed with your love that we love our neighbors well to the very same degree we love ourselves, and that we would love one another in the church family as you have loved us. Help us, we pray. Guide us, guard us, and draw us near to you. We thank you for Jesus, our King and our Protector. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, I know 